Lord, I agree with that prayer and those prayers. We, we do desire that you would work in all of these circumstances, and particularly those issues where a lot of people have been affected these last two days, these incidents. And uh, we just know from your word that when people abandon youth, and this is what we can expect, and that's in large measure, I believe, what going on in our country right now we as a people have abandoned you we suffer the consequences of your protection and all the things that you would want to provide your salvation so as was prayed we do want to be lights in this dark world we do want to take opportunities to share you as opportunities arise so as we gather this morning to be better prepared to be those lights Just pray that your word will work in us, that we may understand it and be able to take it from here and utilize it in in our dealings with people that need what you have for them. We commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Okay, are we ready? Set. Go. We finally have arrived at chapter 8 in the book of Romans. Chapter 8 is one of the... More glorious, you might say, and some would describe it as one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. It certainly is glorious because it tells about victory in Christ, essentially. The power that is available to live the Christian life. Coming out from chapter 7, it is a drastic contrast, and you almost feel something of a cloud lifting as you get into chapter 8. In fact, I'll come back to it and give you a quote from one of the writers that write on Romans and biblical passages. But I'd like to kind of introduce the passage by going back. We didn't have time last time. I wanted to get to the end of chapter 7. And I want to just introduce it by reminding you of an important concept I mentioned it, I didn't go into detail on it, but notice in verse 23 of chapter 7, but I see a different law in the members of my body, and I expounded all of that. This different law is like a physical law of gravity, except it's a spiritual law, and these laws are unchangeable. This is the way God has set up the moral universe, you might say, and So certain things happen in a kind of predictable way, you might say, in a law way. And this is a destructive thing. This is as a result of sin in the members of my body, waging war. And I want you to notice the little phrase, against the law of my mind. And remember in chapter 7, I tried to emphasize, I think, what Paul is describing back and forth, this war that goes on within Every believer, because we have two natures, and we've contrasted that as we've gone through all of it. So when he says the law of my mind, in other words, there's something else going on. I think it's an an illusion based on what he's already said and based on what he's going to say in chapter 8. It's an illusion to what can take place when the spirit is operating in that new mentality or that renewed mind. But what I want to emphasize is the the mind. In other words, the battle is primarily in our minds. How we perceive who we are and how we perceive things around us. 
bad things happen to us, how are we, how are we going to respond to them? Well, it depends on our thought process to begin with. And from there, it affects our emotions. And then from there, we respond oftentimes in a negative way. And I want you to notice how many sentences have we encountered all the way from chapter 6 and chapter 7 that deal with a Christian life. Let me ask you the question. How many of those passages were in the imperative mood? And I'll challenge you, uh, take a look at chapter 8 and see how many of those passages in chapter 8. And what I mean in the imperative mood, how many of them, in other words, how many commands are there in Romans 6 through 8? Commands, in other words, do something or take some action or change something. Think about it. So far, verse 11, 12, 13, I think 14 are the, are the only commands that we've encountered. The battle is in how our thinking, and even verse 11, where it encourages us, in other words, reckon these things to be true. In other words, think about what is reality, and then your actions will stem from that thinking. Chapter 8 is similar. We don't have a lot of, in fact, I haven't counted, but I don't think there are any imperatives in chapter 8. I'm going to have to check that out, but I'll let you check it out as well. And then in verse 24, wretched man that I am, my thinking, if it's in the flesh, and we've seen through the chapter, is going to end in verse 24 in this almost a sense of despair and wretchedness. It almost sounds like lostness, but if it's a believer here, then wretched man that I am, recognizing that only a person outside of myself, who? Who will rescue me from this body of sin? And then notice, he gives the answer, and I think he gives a summary of chapter 8. It's all tied to Jesus Christ using the instrumentality of the Spirit. God uses his Spirit, but it's based on what Jesus did, just like salvation. So thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on one hand, I myself, with my mind, there you go, with my thinking, with my intellect, am serving the law of God. In other words, it's in my mind. I've, I've renewed my thinking. I, I know biblical principles. But because of the sin nature, in 25, he's kind of summarizing everything that he said in the prior verses in chapter 7. So in my mind, I'm serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh that sinful nature with my flesh, the law of sin. And there's a law there as well. In other words, things that are cannot be changed, things that this is the way sin is, this is the response that happens when I'm in the flesh. It's like a law. But also, just like the law of gravity, we can overcome the law of gravity. We don't change it. It still acts but if you have a greater law, you can observe a multi-ton piece of steel fly through, fly through the air, exactly. But other forces, aerodynamic forces, other powers enable that airplane to overcome the law of gravity and, in fact, appear to be floating up in the air. Steel or aluminum, 
all the components adding up to tons overcoming. And in chapter 8, we have the law of the spirit, and that's the key to living the Christian life. But the point being, by way of introduction, notice in these passages, he's going to continue to lay out truth. He's going to continue to lay out doctrine. He's going to lay out reality, things that we need to focus in on in the renewing of our mind. And then from that, from those principles, we can overcome the law of sin and death. So Paul is writing to a group of people that had the same issues that we have today in the city of Rome. We've looked at some of these photographs to just remind you. Real people in a real place at a real time, 2,000 years before our time, face the same issues that we face today. And because scripture is inspired, we have the book of Romans available, and it's just as applicable to us as it was in the time of Paul. So, in the book of Romans, we've arrived at chapter 8, and Spenner says the following, If Holy Scripture was a ring, and the epistle to the Romans, its precious stone, and Romans is a magnificent book, he goes on to say, chapter 8 would be the sparkling part of the jewel. So he's using a little imagery here to kind of portray the magnificence, you might say, of Romans chapter 8. And I can give you other quotes from other writers that say not the same thing, but basically speak in terms of the importance of the chapter that we're going to look at. So just a reminder of where we're at in this process of sanctification. We're in the third stage here. We've seen chapter 6, many, many principles Basic principles needed to be able to live the Christian life or, using Paul's language, to be sanctified. Essentially the same idea. We just completed chapter 7 where he lays out the negative aspects or the problems that we encounter. That those laws, when they are allowed to have their force, this is how we live. Our tendency, basically, is like a law. Our tendency is to want to have a list of things to do. In the Jewish mind, it was obeying the law. In the Christian mind, it can be obeying the law, but it can also include all the commandments of the New Testament. If I just start obeying all these commandments, then I'm going to be successful in the Christian life or and or in the process of sanctification. Well, we saw that that's a problem. In fact, I'm going to review it on another slide here in a moment. So we have the problems, there's other problems as well, and then we've arrived at chapter 8, the power to overcome these negative laws of sin, laws of death, laws of the flesh, laws of the entire negative aspect. There's nothing in us, nothing in the flesh, remember Paul says there's nothing good in the flesh, so there's nothing in the flesh that we can draw on to overcome these more powerful laws. It comes from outside of us, comes from God himself. So God is the author of not only salvation, but I believe he's also the enabler in terms of sanctification as well. So just a quick review. We've seen in chapter 7 more principles 
but more the emphasis on uh, the problems. Church-age believers are not under law. That's the beginning of the chapter, because their tendency is to follow the law. Now, the law, he also has to correct a faulty thinking. The law is good. The law is spiritual. The law is beneficial. But the law was never intended to and cannot sanctify. The law exposes the standards and what God expects, but there's nothing in the law that gives enablement. There's nothing in the law to overcome those other spiritual and or moral laws. So the law cannot sanctify. The law is useful, and he spends a lot of time. It's spiritual, it is good, it reveals sin, etc. So it's useful for exposing where we're at. And then also 13, sanctification involves this internal warfare. And I think that's what's going on in the chapter. 14, principle here, sanctification doesn't reform the sin nature. It doesn't change the sin nature. It is evil, Paul says. We don't improve. We don't necessarily even break habits. We allow the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome them. We'll see that in chapter 8. And we saw also the things I want to do, I can't do, or I don't do, and the very things I hate, I do. So willpower, there's not enough willpower to sanctify. Willpower cannot sanctify. Willpower is just one aspect of who we are, and willpower can be involved in terms of the flesh, or it can be involved in terms of the spirit as well. So willpower cannot sanctify. So the law and self-effort ends in wretchedness. The verse we just read in verse 24. So that's kind of a summary of where we're at. This internal warfare... Three major problems, the issue of the law, and when you try to sanctify yourself or try to live the Christian life with a list of do's and don'ts or a list of commandments from the Old Testament or a list of commandments from the New Testament, we can check off some of the boxes, only the ones we like, the ones that we know we are able to do, and we are puffed up in pride because, oh, I checked off all the boxes. Until the law comes in and says, well, you fell short in all all the boxes you checked, and you miss 300 and other boxes, 300 and however many other boxes. So then that either leads to pride or it leads to frustration. But it does not sanctify. Self-effort, we have constant failure. That ends in wretchedness as well. And we saw willpower. There's not enough of it to live the Christian life. Trying harder over and over and over, that does not sanctify. So that's that internal warfare that I... See in chapter 7. All leading and ending in the wretchedness that we describe. So wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, introducing us to chapter 8. So in chapter 8, we're going to look at the power that is available to overcome the law of sin and death. And verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8, we're going to see, obviously we're not going to get through all of them. We're not even going to get through all the ones on the outline sheet. But there's power available over the sinful flesh that's described, I believe, in chapter 7. And it operates like a law, a moral, spiritual law. But we're going to see there's another law that is introduced to us 
in verse 2. So we could break down the first 11 verses, the first four verses, which I've got on your outline sheet. There's, he starts with freedom from condemnation. Freedom from condemnation. We can divide these four verses into three parts. How many do I have on the outline sheet? Verse 1, absence of condemnation. And we're not going to get too much further into verse 1. We'll probably get into verse 2, at least the beginning part. So, verse 8, let's take a quick look at it. Therefore, we see this often in the book of Romans. We see it often in many passages, particularly doctrinal passages, or passages where you have truth laid out, and now we have the implications or the, what, the conclusion of what has been said. So, therefore, points to what? Low conclusion out of seven. Yeah, out of maybe more, even even more than seven, but at least the immediately preceding context. Well, it's almost the conclusion from all that we've been through because he's taken since uh, chapter one and he's been showing us that you're not cutting it. That's right. You're not good enough. You're not going to make it. You're you're lost. You're failing. You're failing. You're failing. So this is the first bit of good news we've had all along. In the, in the whole... So far. So far, exactly. Very good. So yeah. it, it really... And that's a possibility. He may be thinking in terms of everything he said so far. Because it's all been negative. Yeah, it's all negative. And then now, uh, a sudden change. And I think it's very important, and let me just emphasize, the three major hermeneutical principles. The first one is what? <laughs> Context. The second one? Context. Context. So the third one. Context. All right. It's like real estate. Kind of like real estate, yeah. <laughs> location, location, location. In hermeneutics, in the Bible, it's context, context, context. And that's the reason I took Romans 7 in the way that I took it is because it's in the sanctification context. And this is following in the same context. And I would agree that at least chapter 7, the therefore points back to it. And now he's going to give us a statement here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Now, it's important to keep this in context. Why does he talk about condemnation? Is he going back to the issue of salvation? Probably not, based on context. So let's take a closer look. And if you take a closer look, Unfortunately, it's not so evident in the English text. Now, I don't, how do I say this? I, I don't, I don't want to say it in the wrong way here. I don't think it's necessary that everybody learn Greek or Hebrew. In fact, the majority of people don't have the opportunity, can't for whatever reason. And I, I hope I don't overstress the importance of it. But on some occasions, like on this one, it's helpful to have an idea of what the Greek word of condemnation means, and particularly in this context. Because in general, yes, and in fact, the English word translates uh, a variety of other words as well as condemnation, and generally, and it is true in many of those contexts, when it's referring to condemnation, He's talking about hell, basically. Eternal damnation, if I can curse in class here. <laughs> Eternal separation from God. But in this context, 
let's develop it and see. There's, I think there's another element involved in it. And if you look at the, the, the word itself and the word group, in fact, in my notes, I brought a word study, eight pages. Look through them for you. I've got eight pages of, I think, 12 or 10 font print here of all of the usages of the word group that is behind the word that's translated uh, condemnation. Okay, So there's eight pages here of all of the usages of the, the entire word group. So sometimes other words in the word group are used to are translated in the English condemnation. So it gets a little confusing. So I'm going to try and sort this out. The important thing is there is now no condemnation. Let's take a look at that word first, and then we'll come back. Now, just to reinforce this idea of context, another thing I don't like to do very often is kind of get into the the weeds and the technicality, and particularly of issues like textual criticism. Who cares about it, right? Except Maddie. <laughs> Maddie's one of the few in this room that would care about it. There's an issue of the text in verse 1. If you if you have a King James Version, anyone have a King James Version? Okay. Notice in the King James Version, the verse goes longer than just about all of the other versions. Uh, I think the New King James follows the, the Old King James, right? It does? Yes. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it adds, what I've got in parentheses, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now, this is one of, probably one of the most important textual issues in all of the New Testament. The one that everybody thinks about immediately is the end of the Gospel of Mark, where there's many verses that probably legitimately should be left off, depending, you know, on some of the arguments you want to make. Now, a good case could be made from textual criticism, that science, to include that last part that the King James includes, and yet all of the other versions do not. Okay? Now, personally, in general, I oftentimes follow the uh, critical text, I guess you could say, that includes many manuscripts that have come, that have been discovered after the ones that the King James uses. Which, yeah, the early, and some of them are early and very good. The King James is based on a set of manuscripts called the Received Text, or Textus Receptus. And it was based on the available manuscripts of that period of time, sixteen before the 1600s, okay? And for many, many years, that's all we had. It was the King James Version, based on the Texas Receptus. Over time, scholars, well, not so much scholars, but archaeologists and others have discovered other manuscripts, some better, some not as good, some older. So in the scholarship community or scholar community, a whole new text was devised, the, what is commonly referred to as the critical text or Nestle Allen text, which most of the newer Bibles are based on. So there's some differences between the original text, the original language that the King James was based on and the newer versions. 
And in general, the newer versions are probably a little bit more accurate. Makes sense? <laughs> that doesn't mean the King James is bad or, you know, I don't want to be careful how I state this. I think the Holy Spirit uses whatever version you're looking at. And this whole science of textual criticism tries to give us some uh, tools to be able to make some decisions concerning what the text is. And the reason this is important, we don't have the text or the copy that Paul wrote. We don't have the copy of any writer of Scripture. The original. The original. Although I would say that when they wrote these, they wrote them in multiple. So there, were, there was more than just one autograph. Possible. They would write like, Possible. copies. Possible, yeah. I, it's highly likely. Okay. The point I'm making here is there are some occasions in the New Testament where we have differences between King James and most of the others, but even within some of the translations, depending on the translator's weight that they give to different manuscripts. Probably the best way to do it. Now, I hesitate to get into the weeds here, I'm just explaining this so that you'll have a little bit of understanding why the King James includes more words than most of the other versions, okay? And in fact, the bottom line here, I think it really doesn't matter one way or the other in terms of our understanding of the text, okay? Because if you notice, skip down to verse 4. What does verse 4 tell you? And it's part of the same context, and some of the argument is the reason they left it off. They, some scholars believe that the copies that have the edition here, it was included either as a result of skipping down and adding what you have in verse 4 and or thinking, well, somebody must have left off what we have here. And it appears in verse 4. Or it could be a scribal note yeah. in the margin that right. later gets incorporated. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons that we could uh, come up with. Yeah. So the decision is made as to whether to leave it off or to leave it on. The point being, and, and you can forget everything else I said about textual criticism. <laughs> I'm just kind of giving you a little background. The point being, verse 4 emphasizes this context. And this is going to help us. In other words, he's not talking about condemnation of the unbeliever. Does that make sense? I don't think he's even talking about condemnation in terms of eternal issues. Now, certainly the believer, there's therefore no condemnation in terms of hell and separation from God in the future. That is true. I mean, that's clear from a lot of passages. In fact, that's clear in the teaching of Jesus. But I think what this little phrase, even if it's omitted in verse 1, and I'm inclined to almost go with, the, like I generally go with the critical text over the Texas Receptus in general, this one might be, this one might sway me the other, and I, I hear a good argument for it. But even if it's left out, we have, we have that in verse 4. And what it is explaining, that's why I start off with context, context, context. I think Paul, if not here, and again in verse 4, at least in verse 4, he's giving us the context of what he's talking about when he's talking about condemnation. Does that make sense? So somehow, 
in the context of sanctification, this condemnation has a particular application to the believer. And it's not talking about, he's not going back to chapter 3 is what I'm saying. He's not talking about the condemnation of chapter 3. And in fact, he's using different words there. Am I confusing everybody? Is everybody, okay, is this, everybody following? All right. So let me use an illustration to illustrate what this word means, okay? Let's just take an everyday courtroom scene and the judge is, is reading the verdict of the, the jury and he's announcing it and this is, this is the court verdict. Now, in civil law, you have two things going on. You have the sentencing, right? You're sentenced to a certain amount of prison time. The sentence is pronounced. And then shortly after, the perp is hauled off, and he begins serving time or the punishment. So keep these two aspects in mind. There's The verdict includes the sentencing, the judgment, you might say. In other words, this is the decision, the judgment of the court, the judgment of the jury, and it includes, part of the decision includes a certain amount of serving of time or a certain amount of punishment in some way. In uh, other times, there was different ways of punishing people, sometimes physically, but today we lock people up in general. So keep these two aspects in mind. So the court verdict, so we have condemnation, There's a particular word in this word group that's not in verse 1. It's not crema, but I'm just introducing it to you, where the word judgment, it's translated judgment. Now, sometimes in the English, this is where it gets confusing, crema sometimes is translated condemnation. So unless you can go back and figure out the Greek word, then you could get, get mixed up. So judgment, crema, what we have here is a different word. We have condemnation. We have katakrima. Katakrima. We have a preposition added to krima. Arthur Gingrich, the standard Greek lexicon, has an important note here that I think is very important. He says it's not merely the condemnation or not merely the sentencing, not just the judgment of God's court, but it's the punishment following the sentence. The punishment following the sentence. And when it comes to spiritual issues, the punishment following the sentence includes the ultimate future separation, damnation, hell. But what else does it include? It includes possibility of temporal earthly, immediate punishment. Remember when we talked about wrath in Romans 1? The wrath of God is what? Revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, etc. Remember that? Wrath is revealed, present tense. How is it revealed? How is that wrath revealed at the end of the chapter? He gives the reasons for the wrath. And then at the end of the chapter... He says God gave them over to all of these things. In other words, all of those things are example of wrath or punishment, temporal. 
Remember that? That was several years ago, but <laughs> that wrath works itself out in a present tense sense, not just at the final judgment and ultimate judgment. Okay? So katakrima includes both. It includes, you could put the word sentence there, but I, I'm going with what the wording of uh, Arton Gingrich there, Bauer, Arton Gingrich. Not merely the judgment or the condemnation, but the punishment following the sentence. And the word katakrima, now there's some other forms, there's the verb form, but the noun form only occurs three times, and all of them are in Romans. Now take a look, let's take a look. Go out, look up verse 16 in chapter 5. And remember, that one is in the context of justification. In fact, he's transitioning, I believe, in that passage. Somebody read it. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sent. For on the one hand, the judgment... Okay, the judgment, that's crema. Okay, keep reading. Um, arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. Resulting in katakrima. Judgment is that sentencing. In other words, we are sentenced to hell because of sin. We're not serving it out yet, but it results. In other words, there's something that goes along with it or it follows the condemnation. That's the punishment part. Skip down to verse 18 where it's very similar. Somebody read it. Therefore, as to one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in There's katakrima. There's the second. The second time it's used, and only three times, okay? Condemnation to all men. In other words, sentencing and punishment. Go ahead. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the gift came to all men, resulting in justification. Okay, two results. Justification and or condemnation that includes the total package. See what I'm doing here? I'm trying to demonstrate that when you have katakrima, you have kind of a package deal. You have not just the the sentencing, but you also have the uh, the, the punishment aspect. So katakrima, condemnation, using kind of the same imagery here, you have the judgment or the pronouncement or the sentencing, that's krima, the judgment, krima, but you have plus sin servitude, sin servitude. That's the issue of Romans chapter 7 where he's talking about becoming an enslaved, enslaved to sin. The old nature enslaves. That's the whole theme of the, the whole passage. Sin, servitude. In a sense, when we live in... The, this is the point he's going to make as he expands into Romans 8. He's going to make the point that when we are living in the flesh, we are slaves to the flesh and we're serving out the consequences of our sin. The other point he's making, when Jesus, this is verse 3, when Jesus died on the cross, he died not only for the ultimate penalty of sin, but he died for the temporal punishment as well. Does that make sense? See the context here? Sanctification context? When Christ died on the cross, he died not only for the ultimate condemnation in hell for mankind, 
And when the believer accepts that, there's no condemnation in that way. And in Romans 8, when he says, there's therefore now no condemnation, it also includes the temporal consequences of that sin or punishment for that sin. Do you get punishment that? Punishment may be distinct from consequences. Sometimes we get consequences for our actions. Right. They're not God specifically punishing us right, for sin, right. but hey, you stuck your finger right. in the socket. The result of the flesh brings, you might say, God, it's like the Romans 1 passage, allows us to experience punishment. Uh, I mean, you make me so mad that I punch you out. Now our relationship is broken, and now we have to repair, and, you know, I have to pay your medical bills, you know, because I've broken your jaw, and, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's part of the temporal, ongoing punishment of the flesh, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for that as well. I think that's the point of this, these early verses here. Does that make sense? So, if you translate, and I'm going to stress this freedom that we have, if you translate the verse literally, the Greek text, it's important to notice the word order. What begins, and it's in the what's called the emphatic position, in other words, The main emphasis here is negating the condemnation. So the the verse really would read no condemnation or no, and then it says therefore. So he's trying to emphasize the removal, you might say, or the absence of the condemnation. So the word order is no, therefore, now, and there's no verb there. So it supplies a verb, is condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus. And if you follow the King James Version, he would add the specific referring to make it clear those who either walk in who walk in the spirit rather than walking in the flesh. So we have freedom. No is emphatic. No condemnation. Now, I think in this context, it's referring to the sanctifying process. Context, context, context. Referring to the believer. And if that's not clear enough, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when he talks about in Christ Jesus, he's talking about, remember the context. He's reminding us of what he said in chapter 6. Baptized into Christ, into Christ. Not just salvation, but he's talking about, he's talking about living now as believers. Does that make sense? For those who are in Christ Jesus, so we can add, in Christ Jesus, only those that are believers that are now trying to live out Christian life. Does that make sense? This is not brought out very often. In fact, I've never heard it brought out. I had to kind of think it through myself and study some of the, uh, not only the words, but some of the commentators as well. So, when we speak of no condemnation, going back to chapter, middle of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 5, justification. Remember, this is just a reminder. Justification includes forgiveness of sins. We're, we're acquitted in that law court. That guilt is removed. And like Linda, the mathematician, likes to say, it's not just the negative, we have a positive. We're also declared righteous. 
We are declared to have the righteousness of Christ. That's justification. We've gone over that over and over. But now we're talking about Christ's death in this context. It's for all sins, and in this context, plus for the sin nature as well. For that wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And I think in this context, who will deliver me from this frustrating Christian life, this wretched Christian life? Thanks be to God, Christ Jesus. Okay? And now he's going to expand upon that in Romans 8. So Christ's death is not only for sins, but in this context for the sin nature. So for believers who are in Christ, and in Christ is another way of speaking of in the spirit as opposed to the flesh, eternal punishment put on Christ once for all on the cross, and present punishment of the sin nature also is taken by what Jesus did on the cross. So condemnation here, don't think of hell, don't think of even salvation, think of temporal Christian living. And after we come to the point of wretchedness, what is our natural thought and even emotion? You know, I've blown it so badly in this Christian walk, I'm so frustrated Maybe God's going to punishment. You know, maybe I've lost my salvation. That's the response of some. That's when you have to go back and realize, well, you don't lose your salvation. Or, you know, God doesn't love me as much because I've, I've screwed up so badly. All these negative things that kind of come up. And what he's assuring us, no, there is now no condemnation. Or no, therefore, now condemnation or no condemnation to remind us of the fact that when Christ died on the cross, it was not only once and for all for sin and the punishment, but it includes my failure as a believer as well. David? Uh, one of my favorite terms from Paul is use of the word propitiation. Propitiation replaces condemnation with justification and righteousness through Christ. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Very good. So, we don't have time to get into verse 2, but we'll pick up verse 2 at the end of the month here. We have this release from the condemnation, and now he's going to give the reasons why there's no condemnation. He's going to develop in more detail some of the things that I just kind of laid out, trying to define and to get our thinking right in the word condemnation in verse 1. And let me just introduce it to you. For the law, there you have Namas again. He's going to talk about the law that overcomes the other laws. For the law of the spirit of life. In other words, the Holy Spirit here, it's capitalized. And by the way, the word spirit, how many times did we say? Curse so many times in Romans 8. Usually, Numa in 8 is the Holy Spirit. And this is the first occurrence. The spirit that produces life, it's going to overcome that flesh that produces death. So we have a law in operation that is greater. It's like the the law of aerodynamics that overcomes the law of gravity. We have a law, a spiritual law, the spirit of life that can overcome the law of sin and death and the sin of the flesh or the nature of the flesh. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus 
has set you free from the law, and we have a law again, there's the second law. One law overcoming power of the other law. Set you free from the law of sin and death. So there's victory in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit available to us to live the Christian life. Closing thought here, there is hope in this life, this life, here and now, but for only the Christian. The unbeliever has no hope, and the Christian in the flesh ends in wretchedness, but there's hope to overcome the flesh. But that hope is only for the Christian walking in the Spirit. That's Romans 8. Closing thought here, there is hope in this life, this life, here and now, but for only the Christian. The unbeliever has no hope, and the Christian in the flesh ends in wretchedness, but there's hope to overcome the flesh. But that hope is only for the Christian walking in the Spirit. That's Romans 8. Who wants to close for us? Go ahead. Amen.